So I want to jump into uh, this series. I've uh, been calling it Love Strong, and uh, it's based on uh, this passage out of uh, 1 Corinthians 1.25 that just jumped off the page to me, where Paul says to this messed up church, the weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. The weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And I've said this every time, every week in this series, that what Paul is saying here is not that on God's weakest day, he's stronger than the strongest of us. That's not what, God, what Paul is saying. He's saying there's a different way of God that is counterintuitive to us. It's countercultural to us. But what Paul is saying, that that way, which, which we call a weakness approach of God, is actually stronger than the strongest ways of our culture and our lizard brains. And we'll talk about that today. But to get there, uh, we're going to uh, first look at uh, some scripture. And we're going to jump right into this. So uh, to kind of bring you up to speed in Jesus' life, uh, we don't know a whole lot. Actually, the, the birth narratives that, we're ha that we have, those came much later uh, in, uh, in popular thought and thinking about things. The earliest Christians probably never talked about who he was born to or how he was born. They just started with one day, uh, Jesus goes up to John the Baptist, and he has this experience. John the Baptist is a distant cousin, and John the Baptist uh, has this sense that God is up to something in their world, and Roman occupations everywhere, and they're assuming that God is going to come back and do something profound like God did through Moses in Egypt, that sort of thing. You saw the movie, I'm sure. And so what are, what's going to happen here? And he's inviting people to get their houses in order, to get their lives back on track, to get tight with God again. And so he's inviting people to be baptized for kind of a cleansing, renewal baptism. And he's really the first one that did this that we are aware of on a large scale. There are some moments of baptism back in uh, the former Testament or the earlier Testament, but, uh, but John really nailed this thing, which is why he's called John the Baptist. So Jesus shows up, and something happens. Uh, something weird happens. John recognizes some things in him. We're not exactly sure how everything worked out, but there was a moment that happened, and it changed the trajectory of Jesus. Uh, he may have come in, we don't really know, he may have come in knowing where he was going with his life and this moment turbocharged it or maybe he thought he was just going to be falling in line uh, with the way of John the Baptist but then he had one of these Satori moments that we talked about, one of these liminal space things where it's like God kind of blew his mind and he took off for uh, 40 days in the wilderness, a camping trip. So that's what that is depicting right there. Hanging out, trying to figure out what did I just experience and what are we going to do with this? And to make sure that it wasn't just a vacation, um, he fasted the whole time. So he's after, a, this is a period of spiritual discernment and that's where we catch up with him in this passage. This is out of the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. That's what the NRSVUE stands for. So this is after the baptism. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, uh, this is a Satan figure, and by the way, 
very, very briefly on the Satan figure. Um, this figure, Satan, the devil, whatever, um, you can't really define this character in one particular way. It's a moving target throughout the whole Bible. It's an idea that evolved, really. Uh, you see uh, a picture in Genesis, uh, which is where he first shows up, and really he's kind of a prosecuting attorney at that point, like we're seeing in this case. He's testing the metal of the characters involved in the other part of the story. We've kind of aggrandized uh, this character of Satan in ways that are probably not as biblical as we might think they are. Uh, so we hold on loose to this character and just see what's happening here uh, for its face value and, and what this is going to do for Jesus. So this tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, in this temptation, and there are three, uh, on a very practical level, um, what's being communicated here is Jesus being asked, are you going to live your life by your passions, by your bellies, by your needs and wants, your desires? Is that what is going to make you do all the things that you do in your life? And so in a very, very practical, surfacey level kind of thing, kind of, uh, and Stoicism certainly uh, speaks into this, uh, what we're seeing is, is Jesus is saying, just because I'm super hungry doesn't mean I'm going to order pizza at midnight, right? <laughs> there are times when you're hungry where just have a dinner and there's no, nothing to it, but there is a, there's a practicality here that's just saying, uh, you know, uh, just because I'm starving to death doesn't mean I'm going to go that far. That's like the super surface level that's actually helpful because we probably do lots of things in our lives that... Uh, we're not even thinking about why we're doing them. Or maybe sometimes we're doing them as a self-medication to, to deal with some pain in our lives. And that's part of what's going on here. But there's much more uh, which I'll get to. So the second temptation that we have. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. So now we have the tempter quoting scripture, which is interesting because that's actually helpful information. That sometimes the thing that is tempting us sounds really good, even sounds holy in some ways. But Jesus retorts with more scripture. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Uh, oh, wait, nope, that's not what Jesus said at all. He said, <laughs> Jesus said to him, <laughs> again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So in a very practical, surfacey level kind of way to think about this temptation, you have the tempter saying to Jesus, um, if, if you're really that big of a deal, well, let's find out. Throw yourself off this high place, this pinnacle of the temple, see what God does. This, in a sense, if you can just picture it for a moment, is an invitation really to play God, to tell God who God should be and what God should do. We sometimes do this. Actually, we love to do this. We love to do this. We don't think we're doing it because the way we wrap ourselves around this, it feels really holy, but we love to do this. This is where religion goes bad. 
where we start assuming things about God because they sound like they're really religious and pure, but perhaps they're not as great as we thought they were. Uh, this can show up in dogma and orthodoxy where we communicate to people, well, this is what God clearly wants, and if you don't agree to this list of things, well, that probably means you're not in relationship with God. And God may not like you as much as you think you should, and you may be in big trouble unless you tick all the belief boxes because that's what God is really wanting. And it's hard to argue with some of those things because some of those things are like lifted right out of Scripture and you're like, oh, well, am I disagreeing with the Bible then? But understand what's taking place here when we, when we offer ourselves or, or enter into that kind of a zone. We at that point are saying something in addition to who God is. We're saying this is really what it takes. This is who it means to be a person of God. And in a way, we're putting words in God's mouth that God perhaps never intended in the first place. We do this in our prayers, by the way. I am, I don't think I'm the only one. Have any of you ever prayed for something? Let's just start with that. Have any of you ever prayed for something? <laughs> All right, well, one or two of you, fantastic. <laughs> uh, have any of you ever prayed for something, and then in retrospect, sometime later, you're really glad that prayer did not get answered the way you hoped? I can tell by your little giggles that that's probably right. You're so grateful that God didn't take you up on it. Sometimes prayer in and of itself is a way to coerce God into doing our bidding, for us to tell God what to do. That is what this temptation is, telling God what to do. God, I'm going to throw myself off this temple, something you would never want me to do, but I'm going to do it to see if you are faithful. God, I really pray for this promotion, and if you do it, I'll know you're really the one true God. I might even go to church more if I get that raise, right? Or I need this relationship fixed, God, and because you say you're all about love, I know you're going to do it, this is a form of putting God to the test. This is a form of us becoming gods ourselves and forgetting who we are in relationship to this grander thing. And that whole notion of God, that picture is more like a genie in a bottle than it is this much grander, bigger concept being we call God, this greater other that we can't really even define well. It's a temptation that we love because it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to control. We can feel secure, satisfied in ourselves because we have the right answer. Even if we're fully out of step with God, we can feel good about ourselves <laughs> even though we couldn't be further from truth. The final uh, temptation that we have with Jesus is, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this is an interesting thing for the Satan figure to say because Satan really didn't have the authority to say such a thing. It wasn't his to give in this particular instance. So we know that it's kind of a false uh, promise here. But that's the way temptations work. That's the way this temptation works especially. So then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. 
quoting scripture again. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. On the practical surfacey side of things, this is clearly uh, a temptation for power. If you just worship down, uh, worship and bow down to this thing, all this will be yours. And we do this. Uh, we do this. We, we, in our lizard brainness, we love power. We love dominating over things. It makes us feel secure. Even if you say you don't, we do in our own little weird ways. Uh, it, it might not be world domination, but it may be control over something in your world, that power over something, because it makes us feel secure. We do this in our relationships in different ways. Uh, we do this in our households in certain ways, in our workplace in certain ways, even in the church in certain ways. It's a normal, natural thing to do. And, and in a very large scale, we do this as well. Um, if you really want to get into the weeds on religion and power, uh, go back into September. I did a really, really long sermon, <laughs> about an hour long, uh, talking about how politics and religion uh, developed in our country. And it is a very clear, you can follow the timeline all the way through to recognize why we are where we are now and why all of a sudden it seems like a large group of Christians seem to always be on one side of the political aisle. It didn't just happen. It developed over time. And why? Because of power. Because of power. The church kind of got off step uh, around the fourth century when it became uh, the religious superpower. From that time forward, <laughs> it's just one, been one bad story after another. Instead of becoming uh, hunted because of your faith, you were likely to live because of your faith. Overnight, this happened, and it changed everything and was not at all what Jesus had in mind. So these are surfacey things. Are we going to live by our passion or by our bellies, our needs and wants? That's temptation number one. Or is there a deeper thing that we need to be thinking about? Are we going to be mindful about those things? Our place in, with God and religion and all that, are we going to be, uh, are we going to choose to be God or are we going to let God be God? That's sort of temptation number two and it's very practical, surfacey level. And finally, are we going to be power-grabbing people? Is that what we want? And we do that in a range of ways and certainly with politics that's happened in a larger kind of a way. But these are all surface level things. And so I'm wanting to ask some questions. Is there more here than practical tips for a good, successful life. Because in each of these things, another tradition called Stoicism, which I really enjoy, uh, because it's quite mindful and thoughtful about how we're responding to things so that we're not just reacting to things, a Stoic mindset will give you a lot of those practical answers that I gave. But Jesus, while he certainly, I think, would have appreciated some of Stoicism's principles, he's after something more. And there are some clues here that are really obvious uh, that help us know that that's true. So I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus was Jewish. Everybody realize that? <laughs> he came out of the Jewish tradition. Uh, he came out, more specifically, uh, from northern uh, Israel in the Galilee region, uh, where the, the dominant voice was the Pharisaic um, voice. Uh, there were really four primary sects 
uh, within Judaism at the time that Jesus uh, roamed the earth. And the Pharisees was, was what he probably resonated with uh, the most. There were some that say that he was more on the zealot side of things. I don't think so. Uh, nothing, in his, nothing in his life uh, speaks zealot. Uh, to me. Uh, he was a peacemaker, peace person, and he had a, a, an affinity for mysticism uh, and uh, attentiveness to the law. And those two things together, that, was, that made up kind of that Pharisaic tradition. So Jesus, Jesus knew the letter of the law well. He knew what Jewish law was about. He knew the traditions. And the Jewish people, and this is from Matthew, which was a very Jewish-oriented gospel, so it's mostly a Jewish audience, so that when they read something um, that, that is clearly a Jewish nod, they're going to be all over it. And so what do we see here? Right after the baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40-something. Now, I say 40-something. I know it's 40 days. But if you're a Jewish person and you hear going into the wilderness for 40-something, you're immediately going to think back to the Exodus. If you're a Jewish person, you're going to remember we were enslaved in Egypt. And then the Exodus happened. God drew us out. And for 40 years, we wandered as a people in the wilderness on our way to the promised land. And that whole time, was time for us to get retrained, rethink everything about how we're going to live our life, raising questions like, are we going to be motivated just out of our passions, our bellies, or is there going to be something more? How do we do religion with this God who we just experienced uh, redeeming us, saving us in a profound way? What does it mean to be in relationship with God and trust God? And what does it mean to be uh, powerful people? And how do we understand the relationship of power as faithful people? These are the questions that the Jewish people dealt with for 40 years going through the wilderness experience and route to the promised land. So for the temptation of Jesus, it was the same thing. This was his, this was his testing the metal. This was his figuring out who he was. And at the core, uh, he was going way beyond and way deeper than just a simple, practical, do these five steps and you'll have a better life. Even though those five steps actually will lead to a better life, there's something much deeper at play here. And that deeper thing at play had to do with the very thing that Jesus embodied and taught. It had to do with how, how are, what is the operating system of your life? You, some of you um, have Windows-based computers at home? It's okay. It's a safe place. That's fine. Uh, some of you more Mac OS on that? Yep, Mac fans. Yep. Um, I'm kind of in both worlds, Mac at home, uh, Windows here. Well, what if there was a completely different operating system? And I'm not talking about uh, oh, whatever it is, the open system, uh, whatever that is. <laughs> I'm not talking about, ah, shoot, it's right on the tip of my tongue. One of you already knows it because you're already using it. Uh, what, if, what if there was something so counter to all of that, all the way that we think about computing, that it doesn't even register and doesn't even really work on our present computers and our systems? That's what we're talking about with what Jesus experienced and what the Jewish people had to learn a completely different way of thinking about everything, which largely went back to dealing with uh, their lizard brains. And how do we understand? Because 
the lizard brain is all about the greatest of human strength. And not only are there general things about the human being experience, about what we like in terms of power and selfishness and self-centered stuff and greed and all those things that go into us, but it means something even more specific here in the United States because of who we are as a nation and how we think about things. This is no slam. It's just, just the reality. We live in a radically individualized country, a very successful country, right? A very wealthy country based on capitalism, which is a mindset. It's a worldview on how we think about things. Again, not ripping on them, just stating fact. When you go to other places in the world that are not built the same way as the United States, you recognize a difference, even on the individual thing. In our country, and I love my country, so understand that anything, anytime I talk about our country in any kind of a challenge, and I tried to say this in an email that went out Monday, but I didn't really expand on it, I want to say two things. I want to say, one, there are wonderful things about our country that we love. We're here worshiping freely because of our country. But I want to be able to say that even though we have wonderful things about our country and wonderful traits and wonderful history about our country, we still have a lot of stuff that we kind of like to avoid because it's not so wonderful. And it's still sort of hanging on. We're slowly, you know, integrating and metabolizing and sort of working things out to become more whole. But, but both things are true that were wonderful and a mess all at the same time. And guess what? You are too. <laughs> so the sooner that we can admit to ourselves that, yeah, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, we're wonderful and all that, but at the same time, we have room to grow, the better. Because humility is part of this idea of the weakness of God. Humble enough to to realize there's a different way than just gaining, to having a bigger kingdom for ourselves. And that way, if there's any way to say it with Jesus, is embodied in that one word, love. Not in some kind of wimpy doormat kind of a way, but a deep, fierce love, which requires humility. Pride and power do not require humility. Pride and power and the seeking of more? No, actually, it's just the opposite. Feed more into your ego. Do more for yourself to protect yourself. That's the opposite of humility. That is the, that is the way the world thinks about itself. Just double down on it and go harder. And we see that in obvious, massive, horrific scale of what we're seeing with Putin and Russia. Horrible, horrible things that are happening and continue to go forward. That's that is an egregious example of the way of the world. But the way of Jesus was just different than that. It was humble. It was love. It was choosing to, to really believe, and this is why I think his moment at baptism was so powerful, because at that time in history, the Jewish people wanted the power guy. They wanted more of what the world's strength was, to come in and kick some butt. That was their hope. And then Jesus comes along, <laughs> and he's not kicking any butt. In fact, he's kind of doing the opposite. Instead of telling people what to do and marching around and pointing fingers, he's doing weird things, like going into leper colonies and saying that they're okay and healing them and touching them, which was kind of against the Jewish code. He's talking to tax collectors and letting them know that they're loved by God and seeing what that does which again was not popular. 
He's talking to woman, a woman at a well in Samaria, which was unheard of and inappropriate in his day. He's challenging religious authority on what even the Sabbath itself means, one of the top ten commandments, and he's challenging how we think about it. He's doing everything wrong <laughs> because he's so built on love. Something radically changed him. Everything that he quoted back to the tempter comes from Deuteronomy. Moses' reminder to the people of Israel before they enter the land. Remember who you are. Remember where we've been so that when you enter the new land, you'll stay faithful to God. You'll trust God. Remember that it was from the mouth of God that the manna came from heaven. You're fed by something bigger than you are. Boy, do we need to hear that even today. Not that we're expecting some weird what-is-it material to be on our front lawns every morning and quail to eat at night. That's, that's missing the point. But to realize that we're part of something bigger, this life thing we're a part of provides for us. There's something bigger about all of life that keeps the whole thing going. And can we see that? This is something that requires humility, that it's not just about going to in and out and just getting what we need, or the grocery store, but there's a deeper thing at play here. Probably one of the greatest examples um, that Paul talked about at some point in time uh, to illustrate what this love-based orientation where, you remember, Jesus said, uh, Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and there's a second that's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's my challenge for us to think about. Is it possible that when we truly love ourselves, again, not in some kind of a hedonistic, egocentric way, but when we love ourselves deeply, which means we're looking at all the beautiful and all the stuff that needs work all at the same time and attending to that and asking ourselves, what is the loving best thing we can do for ourselves, which is deep and profound and takes great courage. When we truly love ourselves and we love our neighbors around us, which is everybody around us, is it possible that that is loving God? That they are one and the same? Since God is spirit, according to Jesus, and it's hard to give spirit a warm hug, <laughs> is it possible that when we do radical, deep, healing self-love, again, not hedonistic, not egocentric, but when we genuinely love ourselves, we're loving God. Not that we're God. And when we love each other, we're loving God. God is in everything, everywhere, all the time. Maybe it's the only way we can. Maybe our lip service or our songs, <laughs> as wonderful as they are, maybe they're just flatly inadequate. It leads to a whole different kind of life. Uh, Paul would talk to uh, the Philippian church. This is part of a hymn, actually, that uh, was probably well-known uh, in the Mediterranean region. The Philippian church was his favorite church because they got it. They were like on it. Uh, interestingly, uh, we'll probably bring this up next month, uh, but the pastor of this church was a woman. Isn't that cool? All right, so anyway, uh, this was an ancient hymn. Uh, I took it out of prose uh, look. Uh, this is from the message translation. And this is how they would think about Jesus. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. 
He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. That's the weakness of God. That's a way of God of understanding that love is the only thing there is. Love is the only thing that holds us together. It is our only hope. It is hard. It chooses not to swing back, but it chooses to shine a light on violence. It chooses not to uh, punish other people or lord power over them, but welcome more people to the fray. That's what the weakness of God is about. And I would suggest to you that it is our only hope. Uh, when I was thinking about Jordan Bell, because I knew this was coming uh, for a while, um, Brian and I talked about this, I don't know, a month ago or so, uh, that uh, he'd found this song and uh, the motivation for the song. And I'm thinking here in Black History Month, I'm thinking of Emmett Till. Two different examples about when things go amok, when lizard brain gets control. And I'm thinking about Emmett Till, who was a young black man uh, who was kidnapped, beaten to beyond recognition uh, because somebody else in his world thought that it was okay to do that because they looked at him as the other. In a part of the country uh, that is the most churched part of our country, where there should be a ready knowledge of what the greatest commandments are, the worst kinds of things happened. So it's a reminder to me uh, that even though we might say something with our lips, we may be gaming even God as we're gaming ourselves and need to ask the question, are we part of the operating system of the world which is not really ultimately based on love? Or are we humble enough to embrace the weakness approach of God which really is about love? If we're in that second one with the love of God, there's no way the Emmett Till thing would have ever happened. There's no way. At the start of it, somebody would have broken in and said, this is inappropriate. And if it got carried a little bit too far, somebody would say, for the love of God, stop. And how many times has that story repeated itself over time? And for Jordan Bell, if it was truly, if we were truly that deeply Christian of a nation, and he was in a very Christian-y part of the world <laughs> where this all happened, if that were the case, where was the person who said, for the love of God, stop picking on the guy just because you can and just because he's different than the rest of us? Stop it. Who, who was there to, to, to defend him against the predators who were picking on him, emboldening themselves because they simply could? And where are we in that game? Are we a part of the system that represents the strongest and greatest strength of the world? Or are we a part of the learning community that walked across the desert for 40 years and walked in the wilderness for 40 days to remember? It's love, 
It's love. It's love. I invite us uh, to end today. Um, I don't have any juicy story. I think we've got plenty of that uh, today already. Um, I'm so grateful for Brian and Reese uh, for your work uh, today. It's like every song uh, carried its own great message. The goodness of God. Uh, you are loved. Uh, you say I am loved and I believe. And this beautiful song uh, at the end. What I'd like us to do is to say this out loud. This is the classic rendition of uh, this prayer. And this is, a, this is a Pledge of Allegiance prayer, my friends. I don't know if you knew this. Um, that's what it is. It's not a magic formula prayer that if you pray this, you know, God's going to bless you somehow. The point is, live this, and you'll live the life that God intends for us more and more. And after this, I'd like to have just a moment of quiet, and then um, we'll read this one together, which is an adaptation of that prayer sort of in modern language uh, that uh, we can maybe get on board with a little easier. So let's say this out loud together. I'll lead you through a brief quiet time and then we'll, uh, we'll finish with the other one. Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yeah, you don't get to say amen yet. <laughs> Would you close your eyes for just a moment? I'm just asking you to be still for a second. And thinking through the temptations that Jesus experienced. Maybe today what you actually needed was the practical stuff. Just asking the question, am I living by my belly, my passions, or is there something deeper? And am, I, am I playing God with my religion, telling God what to do instead of listening for God? Am I a power grabber in some way? Maybe you needed just that, and that's great. Or maybe you needed to be reminded that there is a completely different operating system that we are invited to live by. That the world really doesn't know and does not operate by. That is not self-centered, is not power-grabbing, is not a me, myself, and I, is not a scarcity-oriented uh, way of being in the world, but is radically based on love love of self, love of others, trusting in God's love, that if we do that, everybody wins. I'm just asking you, what is sticking with you today? And Spirit of God, I ask that you help us take another step and ask why. Why is the thing that is sticky today, why is it sticking for us? And again, trusting that there's more in this room than flesh and blood, that some, there's a dynamic, a present, a reality 
that we call the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, I ask you, what, what do you want us to do in response to the sticky thing that we know is in our head because of whatever? What do you want us to do with it? God, may we be a people whose ethos is love. For those of us who have no problem whatsoever loving our neighbor, every single one of them, until we are out of gas, may we today, God, realize that maybe we need to love ourselves and care for ourselves as much as we care for others. And God, may we today be a people that maybe some of us, we do a fantastic job of nurturing ourselves and looking after ourselves. And maybe we're missing something. And maybe it's time to invest in other people and love them well. And in that process, we're not going to find less love but more. Help us trust Help us be humble enough to realize the temptation is always there to choose this other way when your way is constantly wooing us forward at our depths. May we be your people of love. Now let's say together this uh, more modern version of this prayer. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere, Thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. May it be so. Thank you for coming today. Hope you had a good experience, and we're into the new thing next week. Thanks for coming.